you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. This podcast is sponsored by Mass Mutual. Every way we look out for the ones we love is an act of mutuality. Mass Mutual can help with the financial ones. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Want to retire in your 40s, 30s, or even 20s? Do you simply not want to wait to retire until you're 65? Do you want to become a real estate mogul? Then you don't want to miss today's Queer Money. Today's guest, Chad Carson of CoachCarson.com and BiggerPockets.com, leading real estate blog and podcast, joins us to share how he got into real estate investing right out of college and with only $1,000 in the bank. With Chad, we also discuss if markets are getting bubbly again, how he survived the 2008 housing crash to help protect you from future crashes, and whether budding real estate moguls should avoid more expensive cities such as New York, LA, and Denver. Finally, we talk about Chad's new book, Retire Early with Real Estate, how smart investing can help you escape the nine to five grind and do more of what matters. Published through Bigger Pockets and available on Amazon.com and BiggerPockets.com. If you like this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone of this episode, share it on Instagram along with your favorite point or quote, and tag at Queer Money Podcast. Here we go. Well, welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. As you know, one of our goals is to help all of our community do better financially. And one area that we as a community typically spend quite a bit of money on is real estate, whether it's buying our own homes or rent, or in the case of the show today, investing in real estate, it can be a major expense for us. And so we have a guest today that is going to talk to us about the strategies that he put in place to basically retire as a real estate investor you have to correct me if I'm wrong here, Chad, in his 30s, which is amazing that uh, yeah. he was able to do this. So as you heard in the introduction, a little bit about Chad, but Chad, why don't you go ahead and just share a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This is a lot of fun to be here. Sort of my story, I graduated from college, and so I'm 38 years old. And so a couple of years ago, I did have enough rental income to cover all of my family's like, personal expenses and almost all from rental properties. The beginning of my story was I graduated from college and I was a biology major and a German minor. And I love studying abroad and traveling. And so I thought that was sort of a direction I would go in, either doing something with biology, something with there. And But I also like was just kind of tired of studying and going to school and didn't want to go to here, here. <laughs> a little bit of uh, like housing and flipping houses or doing a little entrepreneurship because I was lucky to not have a lot of student debt because I had a college scholarship. And nice. fortunately, I was able to sort of jump in without a lot to lose. And my kind of short story is that I learned how to flip houses and find deals on properties first, just to sort of put food on the table. And I was just doing it as a entrepreneurship career first. But then over time, my goal was always to have enough passive income coming in from rental properties. So just that regular monthly income. I have a business partner and the two of us built up a portfolio of rental properties and you know, had some ups and downs. We made a bunch of mistakes in 2007 and 8 and kind of grew too fast. But eventually, it settled down to the point where we have enough money coming in to pay the bills. And that's allowed us to do a lot of fun stuff. When you think about it, really, isn't that the dream? Whether you're 25, well, actually, maybe even younger, 25, 45, 65, everyone dreams of having enough money to be able to live the life that they've always desired to have, right? 
you know, I know for me personally, like one thing I'm passionate about is that like all of us have these things that money is sort of holding us back from. And it's so personal. And that's what's so interesting about talking to people about money for me. Personally, for example, my wife and I love to travel. We love foreign languages. We love learning about new places and kind of the humbling experience when you go travel somewhere else. And when we had kids, we also wanted to share that experience with them. And we lived in Ecuador for a year and a half. And so that kind of experience was sort of the epitome of what that money does for us. Like we were able to have slow time with each other and with our kids and learn about new people and not be rushed and just always having to go, 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 which I'm sort of a type A personality, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. And so maybe a lot of listeners are too, like Americans in particular, like have that tight strung kind of go for it. And this, this has good sides and bad sides, but Latin America, particularly for me, was very helpful in this like, all right, you just got to chill out, you know, just to take it easy, enjoy life. And so that time and that ability to have space in your life has been like the epitome of what financial independence is. And, you know, money allows that. And then when you have that space, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do when you grow up? And it might make money, it might not make money, but that's the cool part is that you can eventually get to that point where you can start asking those questions and start doing things that you might not have thought possible before. I really have to say, I can totally relate. And I think that a lot of our listeners, you probably can relate to this too, if you've traveled. Chad just said that going to a foreign country sometimes can be a very humbling experience because we go away and we go to these places and we realize all of the privileges and opportunities that we have in America, or if you're listening from Europe, but there's a lot of places in the world where we live and then we travel somewhere else and we see it's amazing all of the opportunity that we have. Chad, one of the themes that you were just talking about there is this whole idea that if money didn't matter and we could do anything that we wanted, we then start thinking about this idea of all of this potential. Why do you think that that kind of theme is so common in advice that people in the personal finance community give? Why does that seem to be the beginning place for so many people? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it really is. That's one of the common themes you always hear people talk about is that start with your why or start with your personal sort of motivation before you get into the financial numbers. I wrote about this sometimes and I actually went all the way back to like to Aristotle to try to figure it out for myself is kind of strange. But <laughs> Aristotle, that Greek philosopher, had this idea of the golden mean of any virtue. So like, for example, courage is a virtue. And if you have too much courage, you know, you jump off a cliff without a parachute. That's crazy, <laughs> you know. Um, and if you have too little courage, you're a coward and you can't like get up in the morning and face all these difficult things. And so like his point was like you need to find like kind of happy medium of a virtue. And I found money to be the same way. And I think that's why if you make it too important and you like, you know, just always think about money, you're sort of going too far that way. You're missing the point of life. Why are you doing this? Like all you're doing is working. All you're doing is saving. Like, are you not enjoying your life? And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who like throw caution to the wind. You know, they're the people jumping off the cliff without a parachute and they're not thinking about their future. They're not saving for their 401k. What happens if they lose their job? And so I think there's a happy medium in there. But for me personally, like having that personal idea of why I'm doing this and having that motivate me gets you through some of that inertia that it takes to get good at anything. It's like getting in shape, like exercising, you know, getting good with your money or investing in real estate isn't easy at first. It's like going to the gyms really, really hard when you're getting <laughs> up in the morning. And, and so I think it's the same way. And having that idea in mind is really important. Yeah, I think if you don't know what it is you want to work for, someday you're going to wake up and think to yourself, what have I been working for? <laughs> mm -hmm, right. like, yeah. Did I just completely waste my life, you know, working towards a goal that I don't even have? 
Did you go through any sort of exercises or thought process to figure out what was important to you? Yeah, that's a good question because it wasn't like any foresight on my part. It was like me stumbling into a wall and smashing my face. That's how I learned about it. <laughs> like in 2006 and seven, I mentioned briefly that I had my business partner and I, we sort of borrowed goals from other people. You know, sometimes when you're a beginner, you read books or you go to a class. The teacher is really impressive. And oh, wow, they're buying and selling a lot of properties. That sounds great. Why don't I just borrow that goal from them? And maybe we should buy and sell a lot of properties. And the problem was like, we didn't do your advice here, you know, to actually think about why you want to do this. And so we bought and sold a lot of properties. And for the most part, it was good. We made money and we built some wealth, but we also made a lot of mistakes because we were growing so fast and we bought some properties in bad locations. We bought some properties that had bad cash flow. And my business partner, the more wise of the two of us said, Hey, why don't we like think about this? Let's just make a list. And so to your question, we actually made a list of like, what are the things we want to do beyond money? Like, what are the things we want to do? And I love playing still to this day, like playing pickup basketball. And so I wrote playing pickup basketball in the middle of the day for two hours without <laughs> having to go anywhere. And, <laughs> nice. and then we wrote like hiking. And for my wife and I, it was going to be traveling abroad. And when I looked at these things, like they didn't cost a lot of money. You know, traveling costs money, but it was a finite. I could save 30,000 bucks and travel for a year, like for example. And it was more about the time and the space and the flexibility to be able to do those things. You know, play basketball in the middle of the day doesn't cost any money, but I couldn't do what I wanted to do based on the goal I had borrowed from that teacher. It really was a wake up call to say, you got to build your finances and your business around that personal goal. And the problem I think I had, maybe other people have too, is you get caught up in kind of comparison of saying, wow, so-and-so has 50 properties or so-and-so has 10 properties and I've only got one or I've got zero. That's difficult psychologically, maybe for all of us, but it takes that courage, the Aristotle's courage to actually look at it and say, you know what, I'm going to own my goal and my why, and that's perfectly okay. I'm okay with that. And I can be patient and that's easier said than done. Yeah, I love it. One thing I will say that I appreciate, and you kind of made the comment, then stepped back and gave a little bit more information that having money as the goal is sometimes the near term that helps us to understand, you know, yes, I would like to make a significant amount of money, but then what that can be is the springboard to say, what can I do with that money? You know, in our, our community, we still have to fund organizations that are out there on the streets making laws. We still have to fund those organizations. So our money mm -hmm. can do other things than just provide us with a nice place to live or provide right. us with great travel. And those things are great and nice to have, but sometimes you need to have that first, okay, yeah, I'd like to make a lot of money because then I can do all these different things with the money. And that's, like you said, some of them are free, some of them cost, you find the balance. Exactly. Yeah, good point. So for our listeners, if you need some help trying to figure out what your why is, what's most important to you, go to deffreeguys.com and download our Hopes and Dreams worksheet that has some questions that can walk you through trying to figure out exactly what that is, and then you can start to design your life around that. Chad is here today to talk about his book, Retire Early with Real Estate, which he's publishing through Bigger Pockets. You kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. In your book, you said that you were sprinting towards buying lots of properties, and then 2008 happened. And my <laughs> guess is that a lot of our listeners today are saying, you know, yeah, right, guys, I'm not going to get into real estate. I watched my family or I watched friends go through the 2008 crisis, or I went through it myself, and I'm not going there again. So why do you think that you were able to survive the 2008 crisis and come out still a real estate investor? Yeah. So lots of good lessons there. I think some of the biggest ones come down to personal finance, the stuff you guys talk about. For example, we lived fairly frugally, both I did, my business partner did. 
And so when we made money in the good times, we actually saved most of it. Like we just didn't spend a lot of that money. We just stashed away big cash reserves, which at times kind of seemed ridiculous. Like, why do we have $120,000 in the bank? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's crazy. We just flipped like four houses. And I had a mentor, a professor that taught me this lesson. I actually included the story in the book because I loved it so much. When I first graduated from college, I got to ride around with him in the car and ask some questions. And he told me this story about when he was 23 and a, a guy he worked for told him a story. And he said, Louis, which is my professor's name, he said, Louis, do you want to know how to become rich? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. I want to know how to do that. And so he said, all right, Louis, first of all, you've got to learn how to live on $30,000 per month. And that number might seem ridiculous depending on where you live, right? But equate that to like the basic cost of living somewhere. And he said, so first of all, you got to learn to live on $30,000 a month and then make $30,000 a month. Got it, Louis? Yeah, I got it. All right. <laughs> and so he said, all right, that's lesson number one. All right, lesson number two, Louis, now you got to learn how to make $60,000 a year and still live on $30,000 a year. Got it, Louis? Yeah. Wow. All right. Got it. I got it. And step number three, you need to learn how to make 120000 a year and still live off $30,000 a year, Louis. You got it? Right. Yeah. All right. Got it. One of the story is that there's a gap between savings, like between what you earn and what you save. And so I don't know, maybe it was Louis' story. Maybe it was something just fear of like running out of money or something, but we saved a lot of money. And so when 2008 hit, I mentioned earlier that we made some mistakes, that like we did some good things, but we also had properties that basically cost us money for the next couple of years where, for example, tenants moved out because people are losing their jobs here and there. And we had turnover where they tore up the property or just the property needed work that we didn't estimate up front. And so we had to put 10,000 bucks or 15,000 bucks into a property. And so if we had not had that money, you know, that would have been really bad. And so I think the moral of the story, number one, is just if you're going to get into real estate, you can't get in there if you have it as a really small margin. It's okay to wait and save some money. My wife and I, when we bought a house on our own outside the business, we made sure we had 5,000 bucks set aside for that one property that had a $500 mortgage payment. Those kind of numbers and having reserves really is what got us through. And then also just hustling and thinking about like, all right, what's the worst thing that could happen in real estate? You can do this in any business or any situation. But in real estate, I noticed that a lot of the people who did go broke and past recessions and the Great Depression, it typically was because of debt, because in many real estate investors got overextended and perhaps they had a loan that came due, meaning the bank had like a short term fuse on it. Maybe it's a three year loan or a five year loan and they had to pay it all back in three or five years. That's called a balloon note in the real estate world. And it's not common for like residential mortgages as much. Sometimes there's adjustable rate mortgages and things like that. Having a balloon in 2008 and nine, where you had to pay $100,000 or $200,000 back to the bank could be a disaster if you don't have enough money. And so I think the two kind of takeaways that I think people can use now as well is that you need to have some reserves because you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, yes, we could have the next Great Depression. We could not. We could have you know five more years of the status quo. Like nobody really knows. But if you have cash reserves, it gives you that flexibility. And then number two, if you're going to get into real estate, and I know we can definitely talk about like, you know, how the numbers work and the technical part of it, but when you get loans, like borrowing money is a tool, but it's also can be a dangerous tool. It's like working with power tools, like cutting saws <laughs> and things like that. You know, I cannot use a power saw to save my life, but I would probably cut my finger off. So if you are scared of debt or debt's just something that, you know, you're just not comfortable with at the moment, you know, save up more money or just make sure you buy properties that have a big cushion to cover that debt and make sure there's no crazy terms in there like balloons or adjustments. You basically want to be able to ride out the storm because most storms pass within three to five years. Even the Great Depression, you know, in the 1930s eventually passed. And so you, you want to be able to ride out storms and having long-term financing, a big cushion of reserves is what gets you through those storms. 
Right. Yeah, one of the things I will say I love about what you just said, especially when you're talking about this whole idea of making a certain amount of money living off of that, making more money living off of the original amount, and you're used to hearing us say this, is that no one ever gets rich spending more money than they make. No mm. one. It just doesn't Sorry. happen. I mean, it, you know, we have the examples of Johnny Depp, who recently has been declared basically broke, and he made mm. millions and millions of dollars off of movies. If the same thing is the case here with real estate or whatever job you have, if you make a certain amount of money, if you spend all of that or you spend all of that and then some, there's no way you can invest or have a plan for a better future because you're taking all of that future opportunity up today. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. If, like us, you're getting to a time in your life when you're starting to think about the financial ways of protecting your loved ones, MassMutual is there to help. Now let's get back to the show. So markets seem a bit bubbly right now. And in fact, uh, CNBC had an article today that talked about Seattle should expect a crash sometime soon. <laughs> um, and I know that the real estate market in Denver is stupid right now. And it seems like we've got some leaders who don't really care yeah. <laughs> what they're in cost of Do you see... You don't have a crystal ball and you just can't predict. You don't know what's going to happen. But is there anything in the current environment that's concerning you? I'm glad you mentioned predictions because I did mention earlier, I don't think anybody can predict anything, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't like be prepared and like look at warning signs, you know, and storm clouds are are coming. So (laughs) I guess the caution I think we have to have is like, yes, I think we need to be concerned about fundamentals. So like with real estate in particular, whether you're moving into a house or whether you're buying a rental property, there are definitely some kind of fundamentals, almost like the gravity, you know, physics, you know, that you can't defy gravity, at least forever. The question we don't know, the unpredictable part is like, how long can an economy defy gravity? (laughs) And so like gravity in a real estate market is typically has to do with the connection of what people earn and they go out and borrow money to buy a house, right? I mean, most people don't go out and pay cash for a house. They actually have to put some kind of down payment and then get a mortgage. And so if somebody makes $100,000 a year, they can only afford so much of a mortgage payment. Those kind of indicators in 2018 do look not as good as they were five years ago. It's not as affordable for a lot of people, particularly in the high cost living areas, the West Coast, the East Coast, Northeast, you know, those areas in particular. You know, I think that's really difficult. And so I want to put that aside for a second, just to go back to the, those fundamentals indicate that, yes, there could be, it's kind of bubbly. The problem, though, is like I've listened to a lot of people talking about international real estate and, for example, Canada and Australia, they've had some of those same indicators for over a decade, you know, for for a long time, and it hasn't burst. So if you sit there and say, wow, there's a bubble, I'm just going to sit on my hands and do nothing, it could last 10, 15 years. And so there's got to be sort of a happy medium. And like wherever you are, like I happen to not live in a high cost of living area. So a lot of this is just me helping people secondhand and into studying it from that perspective. But I think if you live in a high cost of living area, you need to think about like what your options are that are reasonable for you financially. And one of those, you know, I'm a owner of real estate, but like if I'm in a high cost of living area, sometimes I just consider renting. Like there's nothing wrong if it costs $500,000 to buy a property and you can rent the same property for 1800 bucks a month. I mean, that's that math is like very good for renting a property. And I actually borrowed a term that I think is another blogger, financialsamurai.com, who said this, that I just think is very good motto to live by with housing. You want to rent luxury and you want to buy utility. So rent luxury, buy utility. And I so like if, you're, if, if you're having to spend $600,000 and your net worth is a million dollars, you're spending 60% if you own the property free and clear of your net worth on your housing, which... 
you know, yes, housing is nice to have, but there's a big range of what type of housing you could have. And if you really do want luxury and you want a nice place, which I, I don't blame people, like you want to live in a nice place, often it's more affordable just to rent that luxury mm. than it is to go out and buy it. I have no problem saying that if the numbers don't work out, you know, rent your nice condo or your nice house in an area that's you know close to the park and you can do what you want to do and it's in a location you like and then save that money that you have on the side and invest it in non-real estate stuff or go out and buy properties and locations where the economics make more sense. And that could be within your city. Like there's a lot of pockets of big cities. I have lots of friends who have done this, who go in the areas that either like in the suburbs or, you know, in just up and coming areas and then buy there or do vacation rentals at the beach, you know, an hour and a half from New York City. I have a friend who does that. And so you could do that or you could just go completely across the country. I know a friend who lives in South Korea and he invests in Montgomery, Alabama, <laughs> you know, buys rental properties <laughs> wow. there. And so that's a possibility. Like you have to consider which one of those you're more comfortable with because there's pluses and minuses to all those. But going back to rent luxury by utility is that our investment money is so valuable, it's so important. And if you have a timeline on getting to certain steps of financial independence, you know, your housing can use up a ton of your money. It's not optimized. It's not producing as much of a return if you're spending a huge chunk of your net worth on housing. So I, I right. think that has to be put into the equation. Exactly. Yeah. I think I would say with that saying of rent luxury by utility, you're probably going to be renting luxury once you have the investable assets and the money coming in from that, right? Rent, yeah, renting exactly. luxury yes. right out the yeah, gate. You don't want to start means... with luxury. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Work yeah. your way to luxury. Right. So you brought up something about, you know, individuals who've gone into some of these larger cities and they have found the up and coming neighborhoods or out in the suburbs. I think that's one of the big concerns with our community is that many in our community feel safer when they're in a larger city oftentimes because they feel safer, they're typically more liberal, it's a place where they feel more comfortable, and oftentimes they feel like they can gravitate towards people that are like them. When you're talking about real estate investing, oftentimes this type of investing is going into, like you said, either the suburbs or some of the up-and-coming, less desirable, mm -hmm. but up-and-coming communities. What do you think that an individual who's a part of the LGBT community and anyone in general can do in those kinds of areas to feel a little bit more secure? Do you have any suggestions? First of all, you know, me not having that personal experience, it's all sort of me just looking at it from the outside in. So I don't have like, you know, 100% understanding of what it would be like. But mm -hmm. I think one thing that I do just personally, and I think this applies to everybody, is when you're looking at a neighborhood, like the good thing about real estate is that it's not like stocks and some like high tech companies where you have to understand fundamentals that might be completely foreign to our normal like day to day life. Basically, with real estate, you're buying a neighborhood and you're buying a community. And so like I love that about real estate. I love that you can put your money where you also believe in the community. There's a way to make money and also feel comfortable with that. So I think the first thing is is just studying your neighborhood and like spending some time there before you even consider spending money. And even if it's an up and coming area, I try to go there at different times of the day, different days of the week and talk to people, talk to neighbors, and particularly, you know, to make sure you're comfortable with the people, make sure it's a culture, a community, values that support you and who you are and what you're about because it's not worth the money to try to be aggressive on prices or be in a place that's in a suburban location that you know, you'd be miserable and you don't want to support them in the first place. I think you can kind of break that maxim that people say, like, separate your money and your emotions a little bit. Mm -hmm. Real estate, I think to start in picking a location, you can do that. You need to start with a location you're comfortable with. And the difference being though, in real estate, we kind of talk about like A, B, C, D neighborhoods. 
there's not an exact science to that, but the A neighborhoods are the most expensive. Like they're typically the most desirable. They're in an area where you know the prices are the highest. And they're typically disconnected from the rent a little bit more. Like your single family houses in town, really expensive. B neighborhoods are still more desirable, a little bit more affordable. Sometimes they're transitioning up to A neighborhoods. And so if you can catch a neighborhood like a B minus, while it's still a little bit affordable, but it's safe and you like it and it's on the way to an A neighborhood, that's part of the sort of art form of picking locations. And the way you do that is, I mean, this isn't like a rocket science, like just going in neighborhoods, talking to people, learning where the trends are, like where are people moving? You know, this neighborhood's too expensive. Where else are people living that's actually a good place to live, but it's also a little bit more affordable. So just it takes some digging and asking. And so like where you want to be typically, I think kind of that buy utility idea that we talked about earlier, rent luxury. If you're living there somewhere, probably a B. You might go down to a C. And what I define like a C is just even more lower price, still not going to be like you're fearful for your life and it's not like crime and things going on, but it's definitely working class. There might be some transition areas, like it might be close to an area that's not as safe, but it might be an area that's kind of moving towards a B. None of this is like exact science. If you start with like the general location, like go to that A location. I love like looking on maps, like Google Maps. And as you start asking people and talking to realtors and learning how neighborhoods work, try to identify those Bs, B minuses, and see what those cost in your area. If you do find places like that, then you also apply the money, the financial criteria as well. But you're starting with those more qualitative analysis of the area. Gotcha. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a little bit of what Mindy Jensen, who was also on Career Money and also is from Bigger Pockets, said on our show. She said, "Buy in the path of progress. You mm-hmm. don't want to buy the place that's already fabulous, you know, unless yes. you can, unless you can afford that, of course. But if you're looking to invest, buy in the path of progress. So." Buy something that's not yet as fabulous as you want it to be, but you expect based on trends that it will be eventually and you can kind of reap the rewards of that. Yes, exactly. If you find yourself in a position where it's not affordable, like that's going to happen and, you know, Denver and other places, maybe the neighborhood you like is a single family house is super expensive, but maybe you can go in the path of progress and buy a duplex or a triplex or a quadruplex if they're available in your market. Mindy might have talked about yeah, this term too, but house hacking is a fabulous way to get into your first property, it might be the only property you need. Like if you can, for example, buy a quadruplex and a single family house costs $500,000 and you have to buy a duplex or a multi-unit property that costs eight or 900,000. If you could live in that one unit and then rent out the other two or three units, you have income coming in from those other units that you can then use to help support your mortgage payment and pay your mortgage payment. And in the end, it could actually be more affordable. You are able to you know, live there, kind of fix the place up as you live there, slowly learn over time. And then later on, if you want to move to a different place, you can do what I've done. I did that exactly, lived in a quadruplex, and then I moved out and I kept that as one of my long-term rental properties. And it already had a mortgage in place. It already was fixed up and nice. It had good tenants. I understood the building. And then I moved to another location that fit my needs better at that time or another type of property, a house, and then kept that as a rental. Nice. Yeah. We know so many people from the real estate community and also the fire community, which I guess you're probably part of both, Yeah, um, sure. who have all said that they've purchased quadruplexes or multiplexes, at least as part of their first investment. And that was mm-hmm. kind of how they got to be able to retire earlier in their 30s like you. I've talked to people about quadruplexes and they're like, I don't have any quadruplexes in my area. If you can do that, that'd be great. But also look for single family houses with basement apartments, single family houses with a separate entrance and you could rent it out Airbnb that you can get really creative with the concept of house hacking. Even if you don't find like the perfect you know, quadruplex property, you can still 
my point is like, don't just buy a single family house. that's your dream house that can't produce any income. Like if you're early in the growth stages of your wealth building or you're just trying to afford living in a location, you know, look for a house that has rentability. That's the key of house hacking. Like whether it's renting out spare bedrooms to roommates, whether it's renting out an apartment over a garage or a basement or a quadruplex, all of those are great because they're reducing your expenses right now while also creating an investment long run. Right. Absolutely. You've got high demand neighborhood. People will rent yard space and pitch a tent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Parking, whatever, you know. Right. One of the things you did bring up, Chad, here is kind of a potential solution for some of that insecurity that some of us may feel in moving into some neighborhoods. If you purchase a home that's large enough where you can rent out rooms or you can purchase a duplex, a multi-unit building, and then you can select the individuals that live around you, you can kind of build a little bit of a safety zone for yourself. They may not all be LGBT. But you can build kind of that safety zone of people who actually know who you are and are on your side to protect you, and you know you can work together. But I do have a question. A lot of what we're talking about here does require financing to some degree. I think that there's always been this saying that, especially I think with real estate, that you have to use other people's money to make money. Very few of us can throw down $900,000 to buy <laughs> to buy a fourplex. And exactly. Yeah. You probably have some other business on the side that's earning you money anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, still in this country, it is okay for lenders in 30 states to deny individuals lending and housing if they are LGBT. Do you have any kind of creative suggestions about how somebody, say, for example, is living in a state where they know or in a city or town where they know that it may be not wise for them to come out where they could maybe go for financing? Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that how shocking that is and appalling and bad, the reality of it when you're dealing with it on the ground and you're just saying, I want to live here and I want to get financing and I need alternatives to the mainstream way of getting a loan, you can sort of look at other examples. And so when I first started, I had a different issue, which was I just didn't have a job. <laughs> you know, I was an entrepreneur and no banks really would lend me a lot of money because being an entrepreneur is equivalent to being unemployed in their eyes. You don't have a (laughs) W-2 income. And so I had to get creative as well. And what I had to do was to go to individuals for my financing as opposed to banks. And so let me explain like a couple examples how that could work. My favorite way that I think could be probably more widely applicable is a lot of people don't realize that IRA accounts and some 401ks, once you've left your job and you can actually self-direct your 401k if you've left your employer, you can actually put that money or somebody else can put that money with a custodian that allows them to loan money against real estate. They could basically be your bank. That professor that I talked about earlier, Louis, he actually was my first you know, sort of financial supporter, backer, my private lender. And he didn't know he could do it. I actually read about it and probably listened to it on a, you know, a radio show or podcast or something. If he wanted to loan me money, he could use his IRA or his self-directed IRA. And so I went and helped him do it and taught him how to do it. And so basically he had a hundred thousand bucks or 150,000 bucks in this retirement account. I found a property that was a good deal and he was able to loan me money, become the bank 
he'd have a first mortgage. We had a closing, just like you would always have a closing. The money would be wired from his retirement custodian to the attorney who does the closing or the title company. And then they record his mortgage just like a bank would. And so I paid interest. You know, in his case, when I first started with Louis, I paid 10% interest. Wow. <laughs> so I paid a very, very high interest rate because I was right. flipping houses and it made sense for me to do it. But after I built some trust with him over time, I still to this day have a small group of private lenders. Almost all the loans that I do have are with individuals and not banks. And we pay them 6% interest these days. And so it's a little bit above what I could get with a bank. But I also had the security and the, the joy as well of, of being able to supply his retirement needs. So I'm paying him 6% interest where if he had it in the bank, he'd get you know 1% in an online <laughs> bank or something. And right. he'd get with an annuity, he might get 3 or 4%. I'm doing a service for him, which is a really important point to make that this person's not just like doing you a favor. They are doing you a favor, but they're benefiting as well. It's a really awesome win-win relationship because that individual is able to sort of bypass all the middlemen and middle people, you know, and be able to loan you money. And you're able to get a loan without having to go to the bank. And I've had this happy relationships with my private lenders for 15, 16 years now, and it's worked really, really well. Nice. Gotcha. Yeah. And getting a 6% annual return on your Anything. 401k is, is actually really good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. With minimal risk, you know, compared to being in a stock that could go up and down on a daily basis. <laughs> That's one like a self-directed IRA. There's a whole story to that and there's more to learn about it. If that sounds interesting to the listeners, just like write that down and make a point to study it a little bit more. It's something interesting to learn about. But the other one that I would encourage, and this goes back to the high cost of living area, instead of buying a house, sometimes it makes sense to rent. And I mentioned that earlier. But if you get a little bit more creative and you think a little bit more like an entrepreneur, you might find opportunities to lease a property and also acquire the right to purchase it down the road. And that's called an option to buy the property. And so I've done this. It's a lease option, the kind of the most familiar term. And it's also another term is called a master lease. Let's say, you know, David's the landlord and I talk to you and I negotiate this with my landlord and say, I'm going to pay you $1,500 per month. I'd also like the right to sublease my two extra bedrooms to roommates. And I will qualify them. And if you need to approve them early on, I'm happy to make sure you know who they are. But you could actually negotiate in your lease to be able to lease those extra bedrooms out. And so you could lease this property from that person for $1,500. And then you could rent the two spare bedrooms to roommates for $500 a piece. You could be leasing this property for $500 per month. And it's only one step further beyond that to also, if this landlord was willing to sell the property, you might negotiate to give them you know, a little bit more than a security deposit. Maybe you give them $3,000 for the right to buy it for some price in the future. So maybe that's $300,000 or some number. The point of all this, that that's probably a, might sound a little complicated if you've never heard of lease options or how to do that. But the long and short of it is, is you control a $300,000, a $500,000 property with just the $500 you're paying in rent plus your deposit, the option deposit that you pay to that person up front. And it's an incredible way to leverage without actually going out and borrowing the money because you're using the existing property, the existing owner, and allowing them to work with you. It takes a little bit more negotiation. It's not like necessarily like brand new beginner strategy, but I say it out to a lot of people because a lot of people don't use it. But if you're out there renting houses or you meet a landlord who owns a property and they seem a little motivated or eh, they're just kind of tired of it. They've been in the business for a while. Don't be afraid to ask them for right. something like that, because if you did, you could have a five year option to buy that property. And if it goes up in value, 
you know, you could then buy the property for 300 and it might be worth 400 five years from now. Right. Like uh, a call on real estate. Yeah. If you just listen to what Chad said, it might sound a little bit confusing or a little bit deep. His book is packed full of, I don't know if they're 100% real life, but these examples that he uses in his book, he walks through them step by step. And he has so many different examples of how you can invest in real estate and actually cash flow, bring money in through your real estate investment. So if that sounded a little confusing, (laughs) it might be a good idea to read this book because the detail that he goes into, the step-by-steps, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do your calculations. Some of us are not the best with numbers. So I love that your book is that detailed. But the other thing I love about what you just talked about is that is kind of the way to just dip your toe in this idea of being a landlord, right? Mm -hmm. Having a roommate or having two roommates in a house where you're actually collecting rent money from them can give you the flavor of what it's like to be a landlord. And you can do that without having to invest a bunch of money in, into it. Exactly. In any business, even in real estate, which is a capital intensive business where it typically requires a lot of money, if you get creative and you think outside the box, there are ways to get started and test it out, dip your toe in the water, like you said, without having to go into huge debt and take a lot of risk, which I know a lot of people are worried about. You know, it's a bubbly market, things are happening, or you're just done such a good job paying off your student debt or something. And here you are going into half a million dollars in debt again. I kind of get that. That is a little scary. And so you've got to think outside the box and be creative in order to find ways to get started. Right. Nice. Well, obviously here we've moved into this idea that there are strategies that you can use. So I'm going to kind of jump to this point here, Chad. You have in your book something you call the five-step real estate early retirement plan, which I think is what most of us, if you are listening to this episode because you saw the title, this is the money portion of it, right? This is what Mm -hmm. you're really interested in. So Chad, can you give us a little idea of what these five steps are and how someone can kind of get the idea if this is something they really want to do? Yeah, sure. The whole metaphor I used in the book and these five steps as well is that you're climbing a mountain. Just assume that like when you're first starting in real estate and you're thinking, you know what, I'd love to retire early and I'd like a property or more than one property to be part of my plan to actually reach financial independence someday. So you're kind of looking at the top of the mountain and that's the peak of the mountain. And so the first step is just getting clear on like, just like we started this call with, like, why am I doing this? Like when I do reach the peak or I reach some plateau along the way, what is it that I'm doing this for? Like, why am I making this effort? Why am I saving this money? Why am I going to buy properties? And so getting clear on the why is step number one. You don't want to look at the peak of the mountain too long. You actually have to then get pretty specific. And so that's the second step is actually, we talked about a little bit as well, is that what's your number? Like, how much do you need to pay for your expenses? I would start with sort of a basic level. You know, we probably all have a range. We're like, you know, $120,000 a year would be nice to have because then I could do this and this and this. But, you know, I could probably get by at 60000 bucks a year. So you pick a basic number because the point here is you could reach a level where your income or your investments are supporting your basic needs. And even getting halfway there is like climbing halfway up the mountain. And you're actually making a big accomplishment if you can measure that and say, you know, I needed 5000 a month and now I have $2,500 a month. My own personal experience, I've taken many retirements at that point. I'm halfway there and I've saved up some money. I'm going to go for four months to South America and just take off, you know, just in travel. And so that's why having a very specific number is great. And so you've started number one with your why. You've got a financial independence number, number two. And then the third part, none of these have to do with real estate, by the way. These are all, you know, just finances. The third part is try to identify, you know, where are you on this journey of wealth building? 
Are you a brand new beginner? Like you have a lot of debt and you're just trying to get out of debt. Almost all of us have been there. So there's no shame in that. But just identify that because your strategy as a brand new beginner is going to be very different than somebody who might be further up like the wealth stages, like they've got a $700,000 nest egg and now they're trying to invest that money. Their approach to real estate is going to be very different and to investing in general will be different depending on where you are. So step three is identify that, you know, where are you? And then step number four is where you get into real estate. And that's really the meat of the book of all those examples you're talking about. And I actually had 25 real people that I interviewed and they were all different stories, different scenarios. Like Mindy Jensen was one and her husband, Carl. Paula Pant is another one y'all might know. Mm -hmm. I went into all their stories because all of them are so unique and they all have a different perspective, but there's some principles, there's some common principles of wealth building and real estate investing that they all applied. The thing they did, the step number four, is they all picked a plan or approach that made sense for them. So for example, house hacking is a starter plan or buying rentals in another city. You're going to pick one of those plans and kind of run with it and just get started, which is step number five. A book is nice, you know, and I want people <laughs> to read the book, but my biggest compliment, I know for you guys are probably the same way with your podcast. Like if people actually take something and like apply it and do something with it, that's the name of the game. That's my encouragement. Also listening here is just take one little piece of this, one little piece of the book, one little piece of this, what you've heard. And if you can apply that and make a little bit of bonus advancement, do a little bit better financially, you can come back to the lessons and keep on applying them after you've already done that. Nice. That's awesome. So to our listeners who have taken the seven-day debt freedom challenge that you can find at debtfreeguys.com, you'll notice that there's a lot of overlap with Chad's five steps and our seven steps. So it's pretty cool. So we definitely recommend that our listeners check out your book. How and where can they find that? The best place, Bigger Pockets, is my publisher, and which is another awesome resource for if people are looking just to learn about real estate and have a community. And so Bigger Pockets, and you just go to the store on Bigger Pockets on the very top of the page. The book will be prominently featured there. And I have a lot of bonuses and things I give along with the book. If you buy it there, you can also buy it on Amazon. If you just look at Retire Early with Real Estate and type that in Amazon, it'll come up. Nice. And that is Retire Early with Real Estate, published by Bigger Pockets. How can our listeners follow you? Are you on social media anywhere? You yeah, have you a sure. website or anything? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I thought about having a website. Is that a good thing to have? <laughs> yeah. I hang out at coachcarson.com. That's my blog and nice. the, the stuff we talked about today. So the intersection of finance and life and money is my passion. I get into a lot of the nitty gritty and really what I'm trying to do is, is just trying to break it down and make it as simple as possible for people. And if you're interested in, you know, achieving financial independence, retiring early, I try to give some very specific kind of how to on my website and have a newsletter and a toolkit people can get to learn about more about how to do it. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. We appreciate having you. It was a pleasure and honor to be here. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you, Chad, for sharing your knowledge and experience with real estate investing, landlording, and early retirement. If you, our listeners, are looking to break the cycle of the nine to five grind, then entrepreneurship and diversified investing, which includes real estate investing, is your strategy. The information in today's show and in Chad's book, Retire Early with Real Estate, How Smart Investing Can Help You Escape the 9-to-5 Grind and Do More of What Matters, published through BiggerPockets.com and available on Amazon and BiggerPockets, are your tools. If you like this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone of this episode, share it on Instagram, along with your favorite point or quote from today's show, and tag at Queer Money Podcast. To learn more about our sponsor, MassMutual, or to find an advisor, visit MassMutual.com. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. 
Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.